You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation where we wander our way through the Disney animated canon in chronological order. We're doing our best, a bit like Bernard the Janitor, to play our part. We might be standing outside the door, but we've got our hats off and our hands over our hearts as we sing to the ideal of a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom. We strive to put all our sweepings into dialogue with one another, picking through the detritus in order to examine the past and understand the present. We're interested in how these movies move us and shape our imaginations. Hopefully along the way, we enrich the experience of these animated films and have some fun too. Today, we are careening through on our ungainly, inelegant legs, struggling like an albatross for flight along the runway that is the 23rd film in the canon and the second Disney animated film of 1977, The Rescuers, a movie that although it came out only three months after the theatrical release of Winnie the Pooh, and although they do both feature a stuffed bear, this movie could not be more different in tone and look. Bob Thomas, in his book, Disney's Art of Animation, calls The Rescuers an impressive achievement and a proper valedictory. With me, as always, is a man who always jumps the 13th step on ladders and stairs and prefers the train because they serve a cork, Mr. Dr. Michael Farmer. <laughs> Either hey, one. Mike. That's fine. <laughs> How you doing, Josh? Good. Uh, yeah, I had not seen this movie since I was a child, I think. I I barely remembered it. There were there were little pieces of it that came back to me. Um, but mostly it was it was it was a new experience to me. I think I have more familiarity, maybe slightly more. I also don't remember much of the rescuers down under. Well, I was going to say that, that one, came, one came out when you were what fourth fifth grade, so I would I would yeah, think you would remember that, that one. So, more. Yeah, so I think most of what I remember is is more from there. Um, but and I'm yeah, not sure I've I, ever uh, seen the sequel. Oh really? Yeah, I, right. I, I I have it because it came. They they re-released the two on the same DVD set, but yeah. I I don't know that I've ever seen it. I know it takes place in Australia, hence the title "The Rescuers Down Under." But I was reading a synopsis of it. And I don't think I've ever seen it. Mm. Yeah, well, we will get there in uh, about a year's time, probably. <laughs> I don't know. I don't have the I don't have the full list in front of me, but I feel like we're not. Uh, we're not too, too far away from it. Yeah, I, I assume we'll do it sometime in 2020. Yeah. Anyway, you're right about this being 180 degrees from Winnie the Pooh. We talked last last month about how that movie is very gentle and uh, kind of set in this timeless uh, space, whereas this movie is very topical in its way and, and set in the real world and... Uh, you know, there's gentle elements. I think Bernard is pretty gentle, uh, played mm-hmm. as he is by Bob Newhart. But uh, I, this is not a gentle movie, that's for sure. Yeah, gentle is definitely not a word for it. In fact, it's um, it's it's 
I, I don't know. Is it the opposite of gentle? Is it abrasive? <laughs> I don't know. Um, there's there's definitely some parts in here that that make me a little uncomfortable, just as far as uh, thematically. And I was thinking about this because, um, you know, looking at it as kind of a bookend, um, because this is kind of the 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 last hurrah of most of the um, nine old men who. Um, you know, are the kind of the core of the animation team. Um, there's five of them that still work on this movie, and then after that, um, this, this is pretty much it. There's a couple who who pop up on uh, what the Fox and the Hound, but this is this is basically the end. So, you know, looking at the um, the real danger to our heroine um, that we see uh, in Penny, and then the real danger in like uh, Snow White. Um, but this one, I don't know, it's, I think because it is sent in a more modern time and because, uh, we see more of Penny's trauma than we see Snow White's trauma. Um, I don't know. It felt, yeah, definitely not gentle. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to read too much into things, but don't, don't you feel like there's a real child molestation undercurrent to what happens to Penny? She gets picked up by these two strangers. She's constantly in her underwear she's thrown down into i i I don't know obviously they don't say the word molestation i they they don't do anything that would directly hint at it but i i i think that's an undercurrent here i think that's one of the things that makes this so sinister yeah and it is definitely sinister in in parts and uh they lighten it there's there's light touches but i think in the light touches almost create a, a for me at least like they, they created a bit of a whiplash um effect um because it would be um there's a there's a scene near the end um where all the all the swamp animals are going to like rescue um penny and it's like this light uh hillbilly style music i don't know if that's a derogatory term that i shouldn't use but you know what i mean like just um that that sort of sort of music and there there there's a lot of jokes in there and then it moves to this super sinister um where uh medusa's got penny and um what's his name mr snoops is that his name snoops uh at gunpoint and there's like this really dark sinister music playing and then she trips and falls and it's back to the light (laughs) <laughs> you know, like like there's this big chase scene, and Which, uh, let me tell you, there's nothing lighthearted about tripping with a loaded shotgun when it's pointed at a child. You, you know, like I know we're supposed to think of oh, that yeah. as funny, but I, I this movie really had me on edge. Yeah, yeah, I agree, and I I think that's that's what I was trying to get back to was that edginess of of it, and um, yeah, I didn't pick up on the molestation undercurrent, but definitely just I mean having having small kids myself and. Um, they're all daughters and then the you know just the the I, I mean there's obviously abuse that's happening um at one point uh you know i mean it's 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 so light because it's disney but it's still like cuts right where medusa says you know why would anyone want to adopt a homely little girl like you and right. it's just it's right it's brutal you know it's really brutal and um obviously the the fact that it's Disney and it's animated, it, it, I think it does leave so much open in your imagination about how much worse this actually is, right? Um, whatever. Think, think about what this movie is. would feel like if the protagonists were not mice, if if these were two human social workers going to rescue Penny. You know what I mean? There'd be nothing cute mm-hmm. or lighthearted about it. It, it. it it's really a very dark movie. 
yeah, yeah. It's surprising to me, and I haven't read the original books. I don't know. Um, Apparently, how... they're quite different. Yeah, I and I wouldn't. I there's a um, there's a quote I had from that same um, Bob Thomas book. Apparently, they were they um, at one point. So they had acquired the rights to the stories um, about an international rescue aid society operated by mice from the basement of the United Nations building. So it sounds really lighthearted, right? Um, and then a screen story had been developed from one of the stories about the captive of a totalitarian government in a Siberia-like stronghold. And Frank Thomas recalls Walt abandoning the project with the comment, hell, the politics is pushing our entertainment. And it's just like, wow, that one sounds really dark too. So I don't, I don't know. I, I would be interested to read them and see how – um, Marguerite Sharp is the is the name of the author. Like how um, she was able to balance the the lightness and the darkness. I mean, of, of writing about this, I assume for kids. If Disney's buying them, but maybe not. Maybe they're not written for kids at all. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. And I I think the the um, the original books they didn't so much rescue people as they kept them company in prison. Mm. Which again yeah. would be a very different kind of movie. And I think that that was. The way they originally envisioned this, there was a poet, right, in the in the totalitarian state. Uh, I have no idea. What I just read you is all that I know about it. So yeah, I, I, and I don't know that much either. But yeah, it would have been a very different movie. And then um, the next plan was to have the movie really revolve around a Louis Prima character who played King Louis from uh, from the Jungle Book, called Louis the Bear. But he. Uh, he had a stroke and went into a coma before he could finish recording the dialogue. Like they got as far as recording some of the dialogue and then he lapsed into this coma that he never came out of. So they had to rewrite the movie. So, I mean, most of the, most of the voice acting in this movie was done in 1973, even though it didn't come out until mm. 77, such that the, the fellow who played Snoops died before the movie came out. Oh, I didn't realize that. Which I mean, makes it even darker in some ways, right? I, I, there's this this dark cloud over this movie that I, I think you really see in the way the movie looks, uh, and and certainly the way it feels. And I my my recollection from the commercials I've seen for Rescuers Down Under is that that movie is much brighter in terms of the color palette than this is. Maybe because it's set in Australia instead of Louisiana. Yeah, I I think that's that sounds right from what I can remember, but. Um, I don't remember much, but yeah, I want to get back to the color palette on this movie because I think it's, I think it is, uh, um, really an, an interesting aspect in this movie. But before we get there, I want to, um, stay on this topic for just a minute longer. And uh, because, because we do talk about, you know, in our show here about how these, these movies shape us and shape our imaginations. And I, I do wonder about, um, I don't uh, introducing our children to the terrors of the world, <laughs> you know, um, and how we can do that, and and this movie does it in a very, in in a in a safe way, I guess, because of the mice characters, because because there is a, the cutesy aspect to it, um, and it, I think there is a a uh, you know maybe a cry for justice within within uh, that could be stirred in the the hearts of our little ones in watching this, and in the hearts of ourselves as well. It would certainly but, be um, a good way to start talking to your children about stranger danger. Do you, do you know when yeah. that campaign started? I know that obviously I grew up with Stranger Danger. I don't know if I I, I don't know the history of Stranger Danger. No. <laughs> oh, it's a way of talking to children about not getting abducted. It's kind of silly because the vast majority of children who are abducted are not abducted by strangers. You know, it must have happened early '80s, so this can't be a response to that because Stranger Danger started because of 
this kid in Minnesota, actually, who got abducted by a stranger from his neighborhood and they didn't find his body for 20 years or something. In fact, I think they may have just found it a few years ago. It was a big deal up wow. here in Minnesota. Um, um, so so I, I think while this movie is not a response to that movement, I think it kind of dovetails with that movement. And, and I mean, because that's what happens here, right? She essentially gets abducted by... by random people off the street i mean rufus the cat seems to suggest that she she kind of knows who they are but i i I could see this as a way to introduce that idea to your children you know be careful around people you don't know don't get in cars with people that sort of thing or they might fly you down to louisiana and throw you into a hole in the bayou (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah hopefully not um But I don't know, Josh. I think I think well, um, yeah, be, be, being be, made to find a diamond in a bayou is probably the best case scenario for for children who are abducted. Just where my my thought went there too. Just as I uh, as I said that, I was like, oh wait a second, talking about these undercurrents there. That you're right. That may be the best case scenario. Um, yeah. And then you think about her being an orphan too. Like she she is an incredibly vulnerable person. And then you you think about like all these terrible stories of what happens to children in foster care sometimes. I mean, not Mm -hmm. all foster care, not the majority of foster care, but I mean, the truth is there's quite a bit of abuse in the foster care system and it's these, these orphans essentially who suffer from it. So I, I don't know. Uh, I, I, I messaged you a few weeks ago and said, you may not want to show this to your children because it's incredibly scary. Right. Yeah. And I think, uh, we've talked about this before, like the, um, the you know watching things as an adult and the things you pick up on versus watching as a kid so i think some of the stuff that we're talking about right now probably definitely went over my kids heads but i should debrief it with them definitely i should i should have some talks about about that stuff because there you know there there have been fears in the past uh with them um you know where you know they've had nightmares or whatever of people grabbing them and and whatnot and they, i mean they've not they there's no trauma to inform that you know but that's just i don't know i don't know if that's a common kid nightmare or what so we should we should probably debrief it but but yeah on the foster care thing that stuff like that just makes me so angry like i just like the there's there's people who are doing um such good work you know uh i know i know some people who are listen to the show or are are doing uh, foster parenting and and so you know to for for the for them to be doing this super hard and good work and then other people to be coming in and and you know basically ruining the whole idea of it and making it a dangerous thing for kids it's just it's awful Which, it makes it's me so like, mad it's just like the priests right so 96% of catholic priests are are morally upstanding people i think that's actually the figure 4% of catholic priests have been uh have been accused of pedophilia or however you want to put it i don't i don't want to offend anybody um and and what makes it so horrible is that this is this is a person who is entrusted with the care of souls and instead they're using it for their own perverted Mm -hmm. gratification and you 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 get that in a lot of areas of life foster care you get it in um schools of course I, i i don't know what you do about it i don't know that there's a way to 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 stop it from happening writ large, you know, just because a certain percentage of people are pedophiles and are going to do their best to molest children. Uh, yeah. Even if, even if they just have to abduct orphans off the street, I'm not sure that happens that often. But. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
I don't know. I mean, this definitely like so. I mean, and that's part of this this movie. What this movie stirs in me is that uh, you know, <laughs> it's that longing for a world made right. You know, because yeah, this this continues to happen, um, and it's it is real. <laughs> you know, um, and yeah. So I don't know. I've been praying through the Psalms recently, and a lot of those. Uh, uh, imprecatory psalms, <laughs> calling down curses on evildoers. I'm just like, man, I, I used to not be feeling these, but recently I, 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 uh, I have certain, certain aspects of our world in mind when I, when I read through them. Somebody on Twitter said that they used to, the, the prophets used to be their go-to, uh, praying for justice, but now it's the psalms. I agree. Like, there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there that's, uh, you would not mind seeing happen to Medusa. Yeah, for sure. Although it looks like she gets eaten by a crocodile at the end, so that's, you know, it's hard to feel yeah. so bad for her. Yeah, uh, she gets eaten eaten by a crocodile while, like, an accordion or something plays, na 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 What a weird movie. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so we should maybe maybe we should go there. Maybe we should. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if weird is going to be lighter than where we are, but uh, you've called this one weird and and very 1970s were your words. So uh, do do you mind expounding on that a little bit? The 70s are a kind of hangover in American culture. So you you, you think of the 50s as being this. Um, it, it's a it's an oversimplification, but a time of cultural consensus or conformity, if you'd prefer. And then you 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 see the 60s as a, a time of idealism and also terror. You know, 1968 is one of the most violent years in American history. But at the same time, a lot of that violence is being conducted in the name of certain political ideals. By the time you get to the 70s, a lot of that idealism is gone, but so is the cultural consensus. Uh, and so there, there's a sense, the, the term Jimmy Carter uses, the very famous term in a speech, and I think 79 is malaise that the, the the United States is under this kind of dark cloud where they it does they don't really believe in themselves anymore partly because of the Vietnam War, uh, partly because of uh, the the oil crisis which which leads to a kind of depression uh, politically or uh, economically speaking, uh, and in particular the 1970s are a terrible time for New York City. Uh, there's the, the, the they essentially went bankrupt. It's a it's a time if you think about the if you think about the 70s as being a a, a great time for underground art in uh, in New York City, the punk movement, the no wave movement, people like Sonic Youth coming up, uh, Patti Smith, all, all these these kind of uh, avant garde artists. The reason that's able to happen is that New York becomes a place where reasonable people no longer want to live because it's so dangerous. Uh, and there's a there's a famous headline where New York had asked the federal government for money. And uh, the, the headline, I think it's New York Post, Ford to City, colon, drop dead. Uh, so I, I think the best place to go, culturally speaking, if you want to see that, is the movie Taxi Driver. Have you ever seen Taxi Driver? I've not seen that one, no. It's a early Scorsese film, and I mean, it's it's just about the lurid streets of New York City, and and a and a, I think we can safely say mentally ill taxi driver who who wants to make things right. I think the Rescuers is actually another pretty great place to go if you want to see it, because the the picture you get of New York in this movie is pretty bleak. Uh, it's it's constantly raining. Uh, you you have a rundown orphanage, or a rather ineffective. 
United Nations. And I think most tellingly, when Medusa is driving to the airport to fly to Devil's Bayou, she just drives into an open gulf in the middle of the street. Uh, the, the city is just decaying. So I, I really do think this is a very 1970s movie, not just in the sense that it's touching on contemporary topics like the United Nations, like um, child abduction, but also uh, just the way it feels is what the 1970s feels like in my head. I, you know, I was born in 1982, so obviously I don't remember the 1970s. But in terms of like cultural representations of the 1970s, The Rescuers feels right down the center. Yeah, I mean, just use even the words you were using there, you know, like really, I feel like capture the aesthetic of this movie, definitely. Um, with the, like you said, it's always raining. Um, there's, there's clouds and fog. And I mean, everything's always kind of in a, like an, like a, like a haze, <laughs> you know, there's, uh, there's, you know, it's, um, there's some, there's some beautiful moments in it, um, you know, like because they're kind of, you know, sunsetty colors, I guess, but it's also like sunset, sunset through the smog, you know? Um, yeah, is yeah. The, is the kind of feel that I get from it. Well, in the early 70s, too, I mean, you use the word smog, and I mean, that's the era of smog. Before, before Nixon, of all people, created the EPA, I mean, go look at some of the pictures of New York or Pittsburgh in particular in the 19, early 1970s, and I mean, you couldn't see there was so much air pollution. It's, it really sounds like a terrible time to have been an American. I, you know, I I don't know if, if that's true or not, but, uh, yeah. Bummer. Yeah. And the movie's a bummer, bummer. because of it. <laughs> but, but from my perspective, that makes the movie much more interesting than it might have been otherwise because it is such a period piece. Yeah, I, I definitely think the movie... Yeah, the movie definitely qualifies as interesting, and it's 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 really fascinating. Um, the thing that that stuck out to me was, um, yeah, just the griminess of it. It's a very lived-in movie, more than maybe more than we've seen. And actually, uh, you know, um, being a huge uh, Star Wars nerd that I am, I, I you know start, the original Star Wars also came out in 1977, and that was that was one of the um, hallmarks of that movie was that it was a very you know the the universe felt really lived in and like it was falling apart you know which is Um, i i think a common quality of movies in the 70s i mean that's that's the height of the auteur era of hollywood filmmaking where you where you have these um you know serious movies made by genius directors scorsese or coppola or whatever a lot of them a lot of them are kind of grimy in that way that is like the appeal of that original star wars isn't it it, oh, absolutely! It, it, feels, it yeah. feels like it was shot in a junkyard or something. Yeah, yeah. There's there's something really great about that, and so um, I I got that kind of vibe in this movie a little bit too. You know, that it's just, um, I mean, especially like well, they're they're going to the airport. I feel like airports now nowadays are so um, so different. You know, like mm-hmm. they're just um, well, one there's all the security stuff, which is which is a huge. Um, huge difference but then like um i don't know there's there's just trash everywhere there's you know there's uh i think at, like as they're walking you know through the maybe maybe it's before they get to the airport but it's just as they're going through the city you know like they're they're walking past all sorts of um you know newspapers crumbled and uh cigar butts and just you know there's all sorts of stuff on the you know in the background and, and filling up the the wasteland of this this area so 
It's really interesting. And I, I should say, I've been to New York. It, there's still trash everywhere. I mean, it's 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 not a clean city, but I think it's cleaner than it was in the 70s. And it's certainly safer than it was in the 70s. I mean, go look at some pictures of Times Square in the 1970s. It's all porno theaters. I mean, it's a, it, it really was a, a nasty place. And I kind of brave of the rescuers, I think, to, to show some version of that in a children's picture. Yeah. And but they do it with that, you know, sort of that uh like I said, they do romanticize it a little bit because even even as they use these colors, which seem very out of place from what we've um seen so far, I feel like in the canon. Like I can't think of another I mean, maybe a little bit of um uh one hundred one Dalmatians, but even there we got such um you know, purples and greens and stuff and, and here it's really um I don't know, reds and oranges and, and some blues when they're down in the bayou, but it's it's very um there's a, it's just a very dirty, grimy sort of feel, but in a um you know, it's still the they're they're paintings, you know, so there's still something beautiful about it, even even as they're painting this, you know, garbage. <laughs> they're they they can't help but make it beautiful in its in its way, you know. Well, I mean, the other thing is, I don't, I, again, I don't know what people's attitude at the time was, but looking back, I think a lot of people romanticize 1970s New York because it's it's this time of, of incredible art, uh, just because it was so cheap to live there. So, I, you know, there's there's nothing people won't romanticize. And so if, if like me, you're inclined to, to think of that era as kind of cool, um, the rescuers might have something to recommend. Yeah. The other thing they super romanticize in this uh <laughs> movie is air travel. Like they the their flight is I mean there's the there's the literal romance um between um Bernard and um Bianca happening. Uh there's this love song playing as they go, but man the the shots all all the shots in that scene as they're flying over the world is are nice and it's it's this really uh gentle reprieve in the in the midst of the movie and um yeah, I mean, other than the takeoff and landing, which obviously are, are horrific, but like the flight itself <laughs> yeah. is 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 so romanticized. Like it, it just makes you want to fly. Um, fly in the back of a, an albatross. Yeah, I guess. You know, is he Orville <laughs> or Wilbur? I can't remember. Uh, he's Orville. Orville. Wilbur's Wilbur in the other one. Uh, yeah. John Candy plays uh, Wilbur. Anyway, um, he was originally supposed to be a pigeon, and then Ollie Johnston saw a video of an albatross trying to land and they, they really do land like that. They're very ungraceful. <laughs> so they changed yeah. it to an albatross. I love it. Yeah. I really, he's, it's, it's funny. Like he's, it's such a small part of the film actually is that, that flight, but you know, he's on the cover and stuff, you know, like I, I feel like it's a very iconic moment in the movie. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the few moments of genuine comedy in this movie. I think a lot of the other attempts to be funny, kind of fall flat but the the takeoff in particular is is pretty good yeah and newhart really sells it i mean i love bob newhart uh so i, I might not be the best the most objective judge of of whether he does a good job in this movie but i i think casting him was a smart move oh yeah he does it i i feel like all the all the uh the main characters in here do do a really great job like even um you know, often we talk about. I mean, maybe you have something to say about Penny because I, I, I guess I usually don't pick up on the 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 poor quality and the and the child acting <laughs> that um, we've picked up on in the past. But um, yeah, I feel like Medusa's great. Um, 
and both Bianca and uh, and Bernard are great in this. Medusa is played by Geraldine Page. She supposedly recorded all of her lines in one take. Yeah, I heard that as well. That uh, that you know, at one point, the um, the guy who animated her is um, Milk Call. Uh, Milk. Yeah, Milk Call, and and he was actually looking for some alternate line or something, or alternate dialogue, and and uh, he <laughs> and realized that they're all like you know first first production or first uh, first first recording. She um she is based on his ex wife. Did you did you see that? Oh, I didn't see that. <laughs> I don't yeah. know what uh, what his poor ex wife must have thought about this movie, but. Yeah. Yeah. Supposedly, supposedly that's how he animated her, and that is the best animation in the movie. I, I in general, I don't think this movie has very good animation, but uh, but Call really outdid himself on Medusa. The scene at the end where she has has to kind of wa- water ski that, that is mm-hmm. that is some great uh, character animation. Yeah, there's a lot of really great stuff in here. The the one of the guys that I often go to when we're researching is. Uh, um, Oh, I don't know how to pronounce his name. Um, and, it, and it's like Deja, um, Andreas Deja, I think is, is his name. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So and he, he's he, a Disney Renaissance animator. Right. I think he, I think he was um, joining Disney around the time of this film. Maybe, maybe uh, just before, or just after. I forget. Um, but anyway, uh, he he talks about the the the. Um, the makeup scene where she's taking the makeup off and he says um he's he considers this sequence as amazing and inventive as anything that was done during disney's golden age he says how on earth would you as an animator even dare to draw scenes in which a villainess takes her makeup off during a conversation with a little girl this kind of business would seem too subtle for animation and much more suitable for live action but if you're a milk call you live for challenges like this he said he got a kick out of working with out these scenes partly because he had never seen anything like this done in animation before. So again, th- those are Andreas uh, Deja's words um, on that, which I thought was pretty pretty uh, insightful and yeah. interesting. Yeah, call this is this is one of the best animated characters in the Disney canon. Yeah, that's that's for yeah. sure. And I, I I think a lot of it was based on his dis- disappointment at not being able to animate Cruella Deville in 101 Dalmatians. To whom, obviously, this woman owes quite a debt. So he 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 came in wanting to outdo. What's the name of the animator who? It's a uh, Milt. Um, oh no, sorry, Mark. Uh, Mark Davis. That's did, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. So he wanted to outdo yeah. Davis, and and I think he did. I I think Medusa is a even more effective character than Corella Deville was. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Um, <clears throat> I I'm not sure. I I I mean. Cr- so Corella's they're both wonderful. Like uh, let's just say that. They're, they're both wonderful, you know. So the fact that they're both vying for the number one spot, like there's 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 that already. But I do I think Corella got a better movie maybe or maybe I, I you That's know That's definitely a better movie. Yeah. And so I I don't know if that makes her um you know, makes her seem like a better character in my mind just because I have more affection for that movie. Um but I was thinking about this. I I, I think Medusa is definitely. Um, I mean, Cruella is awful, but um, her drive is fur coats, which is way different, right, than what we were talking about earlier about you know kidnapping kids and. Um, so yeah, there's just there's just a whole different level of of 
evil in Medusa, I feel like. Oh, yeah, I think she's a much more frightening villain. There, there's not much about her that's played for laughs. Yeah. Yeah, the only moment really that it... Well, I mean, I guess the, that end moment where she's water skiing on the, on, the, the, on the gators is a little bit played for laughs, but other than that, there's not really much. She's scared of the mice. Yeah, of course. So even though she keeps enormous crocodiles for pets, she's afraid of mice. Yeah. So. Now, uh, you you asked me about Penny. I am deeply annoyed by that performance. I she it's 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 too sentimental. It's too cutesy. And the scene with her and Rufus the cat is just unbearable to me. It, it it's <laughs> it's just too much. That's really interesting to me because I, so yeah, I was actually I would I was, I'm I'm eager to hear you talk about this because so is it too is it. Is it just overly sentimental? Is that the problem? Yes. Or what? What? Okay. Um, because I was I was trying to balance this in my own mind as well. So I'll, I'll have you say more. But for me, like it, it's a chance to see. Um, I don't know. There's a, there's an interiorness to Penny that I don't feel like we've really seen in some of our more traumatized characters before. Um, which I think is part of what gives this t- this movie the darkness, you know. And so even though those interior scenes are mm, pretty sentimental, like there, there's this one and there's the one where she's crying on the boat, and there's the um, "Be Brave, Little One" um, song <laughs> goes, which I think is not as affecting as they were hoping. Um, Probably depends on your feelings about '70s soft rock. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. So anyway, say more. Say more about the sentimentality of these. It, it's partly scenes. her vocal performance. So she they give her a speech impediment, which I think is it, it's it's there to be cute. It, it's there to make you feel something. I I just felt like I was being sold something when I watched that performance. Uh, and and I see I didn't write I didn't take any notes on that on the scene other than uh, I hate this. So I don't I don't remember the exact dialogue between Rufus and Penny, but I I was just really annoyed by their relationship. I I get what you're saying. I I think you you do need something that shows us who she is. I just don't think they did that very well. Yeah. Well, I I did write down some of the scene if you um yeah, let's hear <laughs> because let's I hear did want to. Well, I wanted to talk about the faith in this movie. So I don't know. Do you want to go there now or do yeah, you, or do not? It. Okay, so he says to her, um, <clears throat> see if you can make sense of this, Michael, because I cannot. Um, Faith is a bluebird you see from afar. It's for real and as sure as the first evening star. You can't touch it or buy it or wrap it up tight, but it's there just the same, making things turn out right. Yeah, I don't know. What, what is faith in that, in that little poem? It it, yeah, seems, it what, seems to me he's talking about he's talking about faith the same way like Cinderella talks about wishes or dreams. You yeah, know, it's just this. It's really closer to hope than faith because to me faith has to have some sort of object and he doesn't really give faith an object. Yeah, I didn't. I I couldn't make sense of the metaphor even. Like it's it's a bluebird you see from afar. Like what, what does that even mean? I don't I don't understand. Um, but yeah, I thought that was. Uh, frustrating i guess <laughs> it's the word um i don't i don't i don't know i don't know what i want from these movies i guess sometimes when they go when they go into the faith realm you know um but for me like it just i don't know it felt so hollow um vapid maybe yeah <laughs> I no i would agree with that 
And that too, I don't know that I can defend the statement. That too seems very 70s to me. Yeah, maybe so. I don't know. I just feel like, I mean, so I, it's, so to me, like, you know, it jumped out as, um, you know, Jesus actually makes some, some statements about, you know, uh, look at, look, look to the birds, you know, it does, your father knows that each sparrow and like, does not one fall without him, him knowing about it. And are you, is your worth not so much more than a sparrow, you know, like I, I, there's, there's actual weight there. Um, ver- and, and obviously they're not going to have the cat quote Christ. I don't think, Although, <laughs> you know, like you know what they, they've had a cat quote, quote Christ before. Cause Bagheera <laughs> quotes him at the end of the jungle book. <laughs> oh, you're right. You're right. So yeah, they could have gone there. Right. Um, I don't know. Like this just, it just felt like I, the, it doesn't even make sense. It's just, it's just words and they rhyme. It's like the, it's the, it's the Lego movie, you know, like in the Lego movie when he he says, um, these words are true because they rhyme. I forget how it goes, but you know what I'm talking about? No, I, I uh, never saw that movie. Oh yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, it's, it's just, yeah, there's, it's a nice little poem. I mean, as far as what what do I mean by that? I mean just you know like that you it all rhymes you know <laughs> and that's it you know like there's nothing in it so yeah it, it's it's secular right I mean that's that's the issue it's they 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 want the concept of faith but they can't give it any content because by this point Disney is you know trying not to offend non-religious people I suspect although there is that prayer scene which is is that the first prayer scene we've seen since Snow White. Um, I don't think so. I think we've seen a couple other ones. Um, I can't remember now. But this one is I very feel, similar feel... to Snow White in that one of its purposes is to show you how selfless she is. That I mean, she prays for her own con- condition, but she also prays for all the children at the orphanage by name. Right. So, so I was actually I was this this part was the mo- part that was most touching to me of those like overly sentimental parts was you know that she's still praying for the other kids you know by name i i i don't know i i really appreciate that and actually her prayers are answered which is the other big big plus in this you know book in my movie in or sorry a big plus to this movie in my book you know because as, as she prays the mice show up you know they really are an answer to prayer for her so I think that's that's cool too. It'd be a pretty dark movie if uh, at the end she wasn't adopted. Like they got her out of there, but she had to live the rest of her childhood in the orphanage. <laughs> right. I think they got to yeah. answer the prayers. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Well, I guess so. Yeah. You're right. I can't give them too many points for it, but I I don't know. It was it was um. Yeah. I I liked that. I liked that the that uh she. I liked that prayer prayer moment. I in thought it was in good. terms of in, in terms of establishing her character, I I liked that much better than the conversation between her and Rufus. Yeah, Rufus, uh, we should probably say is is a caricature of Ollie Johnston, which he designed. He he animated Rufus to look like himself. <laughs> That's pretty great. <laughs> so I, I do have a, a, a kind of practical question about Rufus. So as we know from the end of the movie, adults can't hear animals talking. Only only children can. Yeah. Do they see that he wears eyeglasses and a scarf? <laughs> okay. So here's my uh, my um, yeah my overthinking it on this one is <laughs> because there's mice everywhere in clothes too, right? And they're all kind of following the like cultural norms of wherever they're from. Like, but you have the African of. mouse with an afro. Yeah. Um. So. My overthinking it is that um, 
you know, in in the way that God created the universe, we are priests of his cosmos. And so as the priests, like all of creation is kind of caught up in our in our in our doings, both for good and for ill. Um, and so uh, that's why the mice reflect the mice and the animals reflect our uh, our um, our culture. <laughs> Now, whether or not they can see his glasses, I don't know about that part. That, that I didn't. I didn't think that far. Although I'm guessing not, because um, yeah, like if you if you saw a mouse, like Medusa sees the mouse and freaks out because she's scared of mice, and she doesn't say something like, "Oh my gosh, that mouse is also wearing a hat and a coat." <laughs> why? Why is that mouse wearing a New York cabbie hat? <laughs> I mean, it seems like even in your even in your fear, it would it would cause a a question. It would make mind. it scarier, I would think. But I mean, maybe that's <laughs> just... maybe that's why she's <laughs> maybe that's why she's so scared. She's not actually scared of mice. She's scared of little dressed up mice. Maybe, maybe that's just what animals do in this universe. Um, but the uh, the alligators aren't wearing any clothes. That's because they're evil. Oh, okay. Like Donald Duck. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. The, the the one moment between Penny and Rufus I thought was really, really good was the way she picks him up and carries him out of the room. Yeah. This, this the very, animation is great. Very, very <laughs> uncomfortable uh, way of holding him that he kind of puts up with because he loves her so much. I, I did think that was well done. Yeah. It's very, very much a cat thing. I mean, a very much a, a way a kid would hold a cat thing. So... Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm I'm guessing. Yeah, adults adults forget, and they also don't see. It's kind of like the Peter Pan thing, right? Like, um, at the end of Peter Pan, the dad sees the the ship in the clouds, and it's like an awakening moment for him. Like, oh yeah, I've actually I've seen this before. You know, like I I like he gets that like window back into childhood. Um, and there's something. I think there's something similar in this where it's like yeah adults adults lose it you know we yeah. talked about last time uh, losing the ability to play it's kind of it's kind of that you know like i think i read that in the both. books the mice can't talk to you unless you talk to them first oh that's an interesting idea and children do talk to animals although i talk to my cats all the time and they've never talked back to me <laughs> yeah you're just not listening right that's true, that's true. <laughs> I'd yeah, be I talked to my cat all the time. All they'd say is, uh, "Feed me, feed me, feed me." <laughs> that's basically what my cat says. Yeah, um, that's yeah. It also made me think a little bit of uh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Did you ever read that? I have not read that. I saw the movie. Yeah, yeah. that movie was not bad actually for an adaptation of a book. Um, but yeah, in that so in that universe, the the mice are actually the most intelligent creatures on the planet. Um, they're actually they're not mice; they're aliens. Um, but they've you know taken on the the uh, the image of mice in our eyes, and so all the all the experiments on lab rats and stuff they're actually experimenting on us. And yeah, it's kind of That's kind funny. of a funny idea. Yeah. Well, the mice are the most intelligent uh, animals in this movie, anyway. <laughs> yeah, they seem to be. Actually, this is the other thing is the the rescue aid society and how different it is from uh, the United Nations. Well, they actually accomplish know? things on, on like the United Nations. 
<laughs> right. On a very small scale, but I think there's something beautiful about that too. So actually I uh this is this is the the one other um thought that I had in here is uh you know in First Corinthians chapter one, um it, it says, Has God has not God made foolish the wisdom of the cosmos? For since in God's wisdom the cosmos did not know God by wisdom, God thought it well to save the faithful by the foolishness of a proclamation. Because God's foolish thing is wiser than human beings and God's weak thing is stronger than human beings. And I just I I don't know, like the idea of I mean they even say it a couple times in this this mo- movie. The cat says it and then Penny says it when they show up like what are you going to do? You're mice. Like, what are you going to do? You know? And so like, I love that sort of imagery of, uh, yeah, the mice are the ones who are going to save the day. You know, the, the unexpected small, uh, foolish in the world's eyes, um, are going to save the day. I, I really actually, I think that's really nice. Yeah. I like that. And the other thing that strikes me about the mice is that they're weak. Like they're, they're, <laughs> they're never really shown to be all that effective they, they're always running away from things because they're small and helpless but at the same time they're, they're they don't really run away from things because they're afraid they run away because they have to run away because they don't have another option mm-hmm. e- even bernard who I, I think is sometimes shown to be a little bit cowardly um even he is is much braver than anybody could possibly expect him to be so i i think they're they're really kind of models on small virtues yeah definitely and i think also that that they are there for her you know like they i mean she ends up rescuing them actually uh once they're you know down in the the hole together and i mean they can't get the diamond out for her um they're gonna get sucked down the the whatever that is the the geyser thing um until she comes and swoops them up like um she actually saves them but but they're the only people who are who are there for her which i guess gets back to what you're saying like maybe some of the original stories were you know they they had a kind of a prison ministry (laughs) i guess you know it's like (laughs) we're not gonna we're not gonna change anything um but we're gonna provide hope just by being with you you know by being on your side I think there's something really beautiful about that. I've been thinking about smallness ever since David Grubbs made us do that episode on Christian Humanist Podcast about Leaf by Niggle, the Tolkien story, and how how our society does not really reward smallness, but really it might be the only way to actually be faithful. Mm. So I, I was maybe primed to think good things about the, the, the tiny little uh, actions of these mice. Yeah, maybe that's the only reason they can get anything done, unlike the United Nations. I don't, I don't mean to be too political. I'm not against the United Nations. I just I don't find them terribly effective. Yeah, uh, yeah, and, and <laughs> yeah, nor am I against them per se. But they are um, well. And can you imba- can you imagine an ambassador actually going on a mission to go? You know what I mean? Like an ambassador to the United Nations, like that's that's not their job. Like their job is not to be boots on the ground, so to speak. You know, um, the rescue aid society is completely different. It is funny. Yeah, I, why, yeah. why connect them with the United Nations? I guess because you need something that's that's international. But yeah, they don't really seem to have that much in common with uh, the United Nations beyond the fact that they're international. Yeah, and they're in the same building, but well, I do just want to highlight that you're the one who brought up Tolkien this time, so that's like a. Uh, a very unexpected change. <laughs> well, yeah, I, and you know, if you, I don't know if you listened to that episode or not, but um, it's the first Tolkien thing I've ever really liked. So, yeah. And then at the I end, I was like, "Hey, uh, does he have other stuff like this?" And David said, "No." <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> not really. <laughs> I think I actually I have that one still in my queue because I've been meaning to read Leaf by Niggle. I have I have it. I have a book which which has it in it, um, and I just have never read it. And so I was like, oh, this will be a good reason or a good excuse to read it, and then I haven't. So I don't think I've actually listened to the episode yet. So highly recommend. I playing... it. Yeah, I'll have to I'll have to get to that. So. Well, the other Tolkien-esque thing that in this movie, and I know it's not only true of Tolkien, but it always makes me think of Tolkien, is like uh, there's a point when uh, Bernard is ready to give up, and then uh, the rescue aid um, music comes back in uh, in the background, and you can tell like uh, you know we're we're supposed to get the the idea that this is in Bianca's head, like she's she's remembering like the words to the song, and I just love that 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 it's the song you know that keeps keeps her going in that moment it's the song that 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 she's like oh actually um there is there is hope because we're you know we've committed to this thing and um the the power of a song or music um to keep to keep uh light and even the darkest times i think is is uh is really i don't know i don't know, I don't know if you have anything else to say about that i just i like it yeah <laughs> I, I like that i like that too that, i like it <laughs> that, that it, it kind of reminds them of their mission yeah which i you know that's why people sing hymns i suppose one mm-hmm. reason yeah definitely i think that's a, i mean getting back to you know praying the psalms and stuff i think that's a huge portion of it you know fill you fill your mind and your heart with these uh with these ideals and these virtues and then uh they're what you can turn to in the when when times get tough while we're talking about that song, I think it's interesting. It's the only diegetic song in the movie. It's the only song that comes from something in the movie instead of being coming from outside the movie. And I, I was trying to think if this is the first movie we've seen where almost none of the songs are diegetic, and it's not. Um, Bambi is the other one where there's no diegetic music. Um, mm. and, and actually, I think this movie has quite a bit in common with Bambi in terms of tone. I mean, Bambi is also a really, really dark movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't, I don't know what you make of that other than the, other than just noting it. Yeah. Actually, I also thought that there were some, some parallels with Bambi, even in some of the, the way the background art is, you know, that it's so impressionistic. Mm-hmm. Um, in this movie, uh, in this movie, they when they're in the bayou, um, they go to some of that impressionistic um, kind of artwork sometimes. And I think part of that is because the mice are so small um, that when they're when they're close in on the on the mice, they almost have to go that route. Um, but also, yeah, I was thinking about the darkness of it. That's the other place where, um, and it's different in Bambi, but we we do experience Bambi's trauma because there's that there's that period which you know, lasts for, it always lasts for longer than I think it will, where he's calling for his mother and he does not know that she's dead when he's running through the, or that the mother is dead, right? When, when he's running through the snowstorm. Yeah. And that's one of the most famously traumatic moments in all, all of film. Yeah. You really experience his, his fear and trauma in that moment. Um, so I did, I did, uh, notice a parallel there as well. I mean, that movie is about 400 times better than this movie. But I I think in terms of tone, that's the one this is closest to, weirdly. Yeah. I don't know that I would have predicted that. Yeah. But as far as the – I'm sorry. Can you say that word again? Diegetic. Diegetic. So diegetic means it's outside the movie. No, no. Diegetic means it's inside the movie. 
Oh, diegetic is inside. What's the? Is there a word for outside? Undiegetic? Probably, <laughs> but I don't know what it is. <laughs> um, anyway, in this movie though, it actually made me think forward. I was thinking that that, uh, and maybe it's just because I forgot that they do it in Bambi, but it feel it felt more like some of the modern um, Disney and Pixar both do it, where it's like some sort of modern sort of pop song over the top of you know, um, a montage scene or trying to make you feel something, you know? Yeah. Like, um, uh, because she loved me. Is that the name of the movie or the name of the song, the Sarah McLaughlin song yes. from Toy Story? Yes. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Like that. Um, although that one's a little different because Jesse does sing that one, doesn't she? So I, don't, I haven't seen that movie since college. Anyway, I mean, yeah, but yes, it's exactly that feel, right? It's exactly that feel. And so, and I don't know if that's because it was 70s soft rock um, instead of the, um, you know, the 40s choir music or whatever. The other place where we've actually seen this was in Robin Hood because the... Um, love, that's right. Love love goes on and on is, is that way as well. It, it is much is more, has, and this, this is a change that happens in the late 60s in movies where... Um, you move from having a score to having pop songs. And the movie that does this famously is The Graduate, which uh, has a Simon and Garfunkel quote-unquote score, soundtrack, that's really just pop songs. So I, I think in in that sense, the, the Rescuers is responding to a broader cultural trend in movies, uh, which, you know, does does set it apart and makes it more modern than really anything else we've seen. For better or for worse. Do you like the song? Do you like... What, what's it called? Someone's Waiting for You? I almost um, called it Somewhere waiting... Out There. <laughs> you, well, that was the other thing I thought of, was Somewhere Out There, which is... Um, what's that? That's from Fifle, right? American Tale, which uh, is animated yeah. by Don Bluth, who left right. Disney after this movie because he was so disgusted by how cheap the animation was. Right, yeah. So he's he's a player in this movie, and um, yeah. So yeah, that definitely it's <laughs> it's funny that you made that uh that that comparison. Um, Someone someone's book. waiting for you is a hell of a lot better than somewhere out there. Somewhere out there is an annoying, glurgy, sentimental song. Uh, someone's waiting for you if if you have a taste for '70s soft rock, which as I get older I increasingly do to my embarrassment. <laughs> I I think it's not a bad song. I like that flugelhorn that plays over the top of it. Um, Shelby Flynn I think is the name of the singer. Uh, I I, I kind of dig it. Flint. Yeah, I think I think outside of the movie I'd like it better than in the movie. I think it, the role it plays in the movie it didn't work for me at all. Like. Um, you know, uh, I under, I understand what they're doing and they're, I, I, I think I've talked about this several times, like experiencing Penny's trauma, I think is, is a very interesting thing that this movie is doing. And that's definitely one of those experiencing her trauma moments. Um, but, uh, the song didn't work for me in the moment. Fair enough. I, I, one other thing to say about the music in this movie, um, the songwriting team is all female. Oh, that's interesting. Carol Connors and I think it's Anne Robbins, although it's spelled like Ayn Rand, so maybe it's Ayn Robbins. I don't know, mm-hmm. but um, I, 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 you know, this is a this is a quietly progressive movie. It's a it's a movie that features an afro, however briefly. It's it's a movie where uh, a woman is allowed to lead a team, even though 
uh, a man doesn't want her to. Uh, and so it makes sense to me that the, the, the songs were written by women and performed by a woman, Shelby Flint. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and they do call it out, right? At the beginning, um, they call out Bianca. And actually, we should spend some time on Bianca just in general here. But um, yeah, when she volunteers, he's like, oh, it's quite out of the ordinary, but there's got to be a first time for everything, um, <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, I think you should take a man with you. Um, and so I, th- I found that really interesting in two ways. One was in, in just the kind of the way that the the movies seem to sometimes parallel what's happening in the studio. And this really is kind of a torch passing movie. Um, not necessarily to females, but like, like I said at the beginning, this is the, the end of the era for the nine old men. And that, you know, there's, there's a new, you know, a new kind of crop of animators coming on board that are going to take the reins from here on out. So it's kind of like, Oh yeah, this is new and it's out of the ordinary and it's different, but there's gotta be a, there's gotta be a time when that happens. Um, but then, yeah, more on the uh, progressive side, um, I thought it was interesting as well to, um, I don't know, just think about about her as a character and how much, um, yeah, how much how much are they are they doing that progressive stuff and how much is it just you know a typical sort of uh, romance, um, you know, girl girl and guy get together type thing. So I don't know what you have I to mean, say they, about that. I mean, they do that, but I do think, I do think there's a, a progressivism in this movie. I, I, you know, it's, it's small. It's, it's, they don't make a big deal about it. It's, I would not call this a political movie. It's, it's, I, I think it, it's much quieter than the way frozen, uh, uses feminism. But I, you know, if, if we were in 1977, I, I think I would call this uh feminist. Yeah, I, I certainly so do don't think, think you get frozen without this movie. Yeah, do you think she per, she chooses Bernard because uh, she's already affectionate for him, or because um, she's living in a man's world and um, she's had to fight and claw her way uh, to that to that place of respect where she can actually lead a team? And then they're like, "No, you have to take a guy with her," and she's like, "Fine, I'll take the janitor." That's, that's <laughs> a great that's a great reading that she 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 wants someone she can push around a little bit. Yeah. She doesn't want to take any of those other guys. I, I took it to be that he is the one who actually climbs into the bottle and pushes the the letter out, like while everybody else are just kind of standing around drooling over Bianca. Uh, Bernard is actually able to do some work. Yeah. <laughs> he's the only one who can work in her presence. Yeah. Although he's also clearly in love with her. Yeah, everybody is. Yeah. This is uh, this, this movie must have launched a number of furries too. We talked about that with uh, with Robin Hood, but yeah, yeah, and it's got a lot of the same same look, you know, um, from Robin Hood. I feel like um, as far as the the humanizing of the the animals. I also like that she shows up late. <laughs> Just thinking about that, like thinking about like that whole idea of like uh, you know women have to work twice as hard uh, to to attain the same sort of stature that a man does or whatever, you know, and they they have no room for error that a man might have and and all that sort of stuff. And so the fact that she's achieved to the level that she has and she can she can come late, um, I, I thought that was really great. It seems very Ava Gabor <laughs> to make that kind of entrance. Very what? Ava Gabor, that's the name of the actress. Oh, okay. She's a kind of socialite. Yeah. She was, I mean, probably best known uh, other than this role. She was, she was the wife on Green Acres. Okay. If you ever watched Green Acres. I've never seen, 
I haven't. I, I, uh, it's not good. I know the, I know the song. Yeah, sure, sure. <laughs> well, she's the one who'd rather stay in New York. Yeah, she's Hungarian, just like uh, Miss Bianca is. I thought that was a nice touch, even though Bianca is not a Hungarian name in any way. Hmm. What do you think the other female mice think of her? Um, <laughs> yeah, we don't really uh, see that, do we? Although um, the uh, what's the the water rat is that what what it is? In the... yeah, I, I guess that's what that woman is. Yeah, she she pulls her. She seems to have some affection for her in the brief interaction that they have. There's not really a lot of other women mice around. The only other one that we see is the one who's singing terribly off key, right? Right. Yeah. Or, and well, the uh, the African delegate. Is a is a woman, a lady mouse. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah Africa right. gets one uh, delegate for the entire continent. Meanwhile, Austria has an Austrian <laughs> delegate and a v- Viennese delegate. <laughs> well, it's it's a, it's a super progressive movie, Michael. So, <laughs> as, as other people have said, so it's quietly progressive. I, I really I really don't know that you can overstate the fact that there is a there is a mouse in this movie that has an afro. Like, can you can you imagine that happening ten years before this? I mean, ten years yeah, ten I, years before this, you've got the Jungle Book where all the uh, the apes are coded as African American. Yeah, you know. So I I, th- I think that's a, a kind of quietly subversive uh, move. Right. No, I, I I'm with you. It makes sense because uh, I, I we watch we. we we rewatched uh, Peter Pan the other night, and, you know that's Yikes. that's what that's twenty years before this. But yeah, the what makes the red man's red is still awful, remains awful. Has it gotten any better in the in the year and a half since we talked about it? <laughs> no, as it turns out. Yeah, yeah. the the other The other thing people have pointed out about the delegates, by the way, is that there's a Latvian delegate, even though it should be a Soviet Union delegate, because Latvia was not an independent country at the time. Uh, so I mm. wonder, I wonder if maybe the Rescue Aid Society just doesn't recognize the Soviet Union. <laughs> maybe so. Yeah. What are What are the? Or, or maybe. Uh, yeah. Maybe I was wrong on the cosmic uh, priesthood thing. Maybe maybe mice actually do have their own uh, boundaries and borders. You know, laws. <laughs> <All that's... laughs> maybe the Soviet Union just doesn't exist in the uh, in the mouse world. There are no totalitarian mice. Yeah. Well, anything else to say about Bianca? I really, I really like her. That was the main thing I wanted to say. I do too. She's uh, great. I like her much more than what's the Ava Gabor character from the Aristocats? Uh, Duchess. Yeah. Is that right? I, th- I think that's right. Yeah. I, I, I like Bianca. Bianca's a much more well-drawn character. Yeah. And oh, the other thing I like about her is just how laid back she is. Um, you know, she's never she's. Nothing, nothing that she faces, um, really is going to set her. You know, it's it's not going to throw her off. Like she's just going to, like she just trusts that that it's going to be okay all the time. With, with the single really exception cool. that when um, when Medusa tries to kill them with the broom, she's very offended. She she can't imagine oh, yeah. that somebody would want to kill them. Yes, yeah, that's that's that is true. But even when the lion yeah. almost eats Bernard in the Central Park Zoo. She's like, well, you must have done yeah. something to make him angry. <laughs> right. You'd be you'd be grumpy too if you woke him up in the middle of the night, or if, you, if somebody woke you up in the middle of the night. 
she's yeah. very she's she's empathetic and she's laid back, which I think contrasts her a bit with Bernard, who is so on edge all the time. Mm-hmm. That's a you know classic comedy pairing. Yeah, well, it really works. They do they do a great job in this movie on that. I think Bernard's super great too. Like he just like you mentioned earlier, like his his you know he's obviously he's superstitious, and they they kind of play that to be a lack of bravery. But it but in all the moments when he needs to be brave, he is. You know, like he walks off into the dark of the zoo. He walks over like past the the geyser thing. Um, to go, you know, to go check out if the diamond might be over on that end. Um, he, you know, he fights off the, like the uh, the alligators when they're coming at him under the whatever they're under under that furniture. Like he's he's always brave in the in the moments when he needs to be. Yeah. And as I said before, I love Bob Newhart so much, and I, I it's it's great to me that Bob Newhart is the star of not one but two. Disney features. Yeah. I think his fear of flying is a reference to, if you watch the Bob Newhart show, uh, which everybody should, uh, his, the the first episode of that show is about his wife, Emily being afraid to fly. And and it comes up again and again in that show. So I I think, I think that might be why he's so afraid to fly. Other than the fact that who would not be afraid to fly on the back of that albatross? (laughs) Yeah. Especially you think about like uh, a, a mouse. Um, I don't. I don't know. Maybe like land land bound animals. It seems like in general have more of a fear, right? Or would have more of a fear of flying. Well, it's, it's certainly be something unnatural about riding in a sardine can on the back of an albatross. If that's what you're <laughs> <laughs> That's what I mean. Yes, exactly that. That's exactly what I mean. <laughs> Like I'm supposed to live in a hole in the ground somewhere. <laughs> no wonder they want to take the train. Do you think? Yeah. Do you think there's a special train for mice, or do you think there's like a compartment <laughs> on human trains where mice are served directly? Yeah. Well, you know, they take the bus, and it's a human bus, so I'm guessing that it's similar. There must be there must be secret compartments everywhere. I mean, it's the same thing. Like they're inside the United Nations building. Um, and so, but they're like, you know, secreted away. So they're, they're still using all the human structures of things. Even the albatross is at the, as at the human airport, you know? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Actually using the same platform as the helicopters that for some reason people are flying. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Let's see. What else do I have here? Um, Penny calls the crocodile a freaky little dragon, which I thought was pretty great. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she kind of says it under her breath. <laughs> freaky little dragon. That is, yeah, that is one of the great, great Penny moments. I think. <laughs> yeah, I like that she has no fear of any animal. Like That's she right, knows yeah. that she's safe, safe with them. Um, especially considering, like, at the end, it seems like it's Medusa's fate that she gets eaten by them. And uh, Snoops is definitely frightened of them. Um, oh, but and I that. would be terrified of them, as they are enormous crocodiles. <laughs> <laughs> she's just kind of annoyed by right. them. Yeah. And I wonder if they have conversations, you know? Like, I mean, she can talk to every other animal, so why why not them as well? Do We, we don't hear them speak English at all, right? 
No, but they're very. What what are they? They they they're they're obviously um they're more than just a trained pet. Like Snoop's can say, take this girl to the to a room, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure you can know. train a real crocodile. Right. <laughs> so I don't know. There's some sort of and can the can a real well this this goes back to your Aristocats question. Like what are, what are the humans hearing when uh the crocodile is playing the um the organ? <laughs> well, I mean he's not so much playing the organ as just jamming on the keys. So I I assume <laughs> that's what she hears. She's certainly annoyed by it. Yeah. <laughs> that uh I liked that sequence a lot, uh where the where they're stuck in the pipes and the and the crocodile is trying to push him out. I thought that was really inventive mm-hmm. and well animated and, and again fairly scary. The scene, yeah, I, I don't remember if I talked about this once we started recording or in our pre-show conversation, but the the scene where Bernard looks up through the pipe and sees the crocodile's eye, I thought that was, if I had been a child, I think that really would have frightened me. Yeah. And then it reminded me a little bit of Cinderella. There's that moment in Cinderella where they're hiding um, from Lucifer the cat in the in the, in the the hole in the wall. And he's, you know, uh, I think it's it's when they're when they're trying to get breakfast or whatever, and they're they're trying to distract him, but also in in danger from him. Yeah. Um. It reminded me a little bit of that, but this this obviously that you know to taken to a new level, and uh, you know, <laughs> being in the pipe organ and and uh and uh, alligator instead of a cat. So this was this was magnitudes greater on that on that simple concept, but very well done, I think. One of the more fun moments in the movie, you know, there's not a ton of them. There's not a ton of like really light moments in the movie. I mean, this this one wasn't light. It's like you said, it's terrifying. Uh, the eye part in, in particular is terrifying. But there's there's something, um, I don't I don't know what would you call it. What word would you use to describe the the fact that they're in, they're inside a pipe organ, and the you know it's the wind from the keys that's like pushing them out, and he's he's running and he accidentally puts on Bianca's hat instead of his own. Um, there's something uh, madcap, maybe. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. It's it's one of those pleasurable things about. Um, that I think animation really does well. Like you, you can see it in other places, but um, there's there's a real terror, a real danger, but also a real uh, playfulness. Just like the just like the the takeoff scene, or uh, for that matter, the water the water skiing scene at the end. Although we don't feel that as terror because we want her to be hurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Shall we talk about yeah. the topless woman? This is probably the thing uh, the rescuers is best known for. <laughs> you have to tell me more about it. I don't know what you're oh, talking about. Oh, famously, it wouldn't be in the the edition you looked at or the edition I looked at unless you're watching a VHS from the from the 90s. Famously, when this movie was in post production, an animator, a woman actually, put in two frames during the uh, takeoff scene of a topless woman in one of the buildings. Um, you can, if you're interested in doing so, you can find a picture online. It's just two frames, so you can't see it if you're just watching it. But once it came out on video, you know, people would pause it, and somebody happened to pause it on that scene, saw the topless woman, and uh, as you might expect, made a big fuss about it. So I actually, I think, 
probably because this movie is not as popular as it once was. I think that that might be the thing it's best known for. And unlike the uh, the uh, sex in uh, is is it the Lion King where the dust supposedly spells sex, or the 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 one from Aladdin is supposedly he says all good teenagers take off your clothes. <laughs> This is this is real. There really was, um, there really was a naked woman uh, in two frames of the mm. rescuers. Interesting. This is now that you said it, it's kind of ringing a bell. It was somebody um, mentioning that to me at some point in my life. But there's there's I something there's something that, that feels on brand about this about that in this movie. <laughs> you know, because the movie's so grimy and so seventies <laughs> that it, it makes sense it that this is the one right? they would put it in. It feels like less of a violation than if they'd put it in Winnie the Pooh or something. <laughs> yeah. What a crazy, like, what a crazy thing to do, though. You know? like. And I should say, that's not animation. <laughs> There's an actual, like, it's a photograph. <laughs> right. But either way, like, what a crazy thing to do. Like, oh, I'm going to stick this in a movie in two frames. Like, that'll, that'll show up. I don't, I don't know. That'll yeah. Was it disgruntledness or was it like know. playfulness? I don't know. Like what what would drive you to to do that? You know. It it, it also says something I think about a post Walt Disney Disney Studios. There's a there's a story about um, somebody had just gotten a job. It was somebody famous, some famous animator had just gotten a job at the Disney Studio in the Walt era, and. Uh, he he made dirty jokes. It was his first day on the job. He made dirty jokes about the characters, and when he got back from lunch, Walt fired him. Like just immediately, he wouldn't put up with that stuff. So yeah, like there, there's this sort of laxness that would allow this to happen. That I don't know if it wouldn't have happened under Walt's reign or not, but it feels like it wouldn't have. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that could be the 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 um, the shifting cultural norms as well, right? To a certain extent, or no? Yeah, like but like I said, it feels very seventies. It's yeah. the, the sort of the sort of sleazy. And again, I mean, it it kind of makes sense that in grimy nineteen seventies New York, there'd be a woman changing <laughs> right in front of the uh, <laughs> the window. And and Maybe again, so. it, it, it must be said. The, the person who put that in there could not have imagined anybody would ever see it because the, the technology didn't exist. There weren't there were there wasn't home video uh, when when this movie came out, and the only way you'd ever see this is on home video. So, or if you you know looked through the film frame by frame. Yeah, that's ridiculous. It, Again, it's just like, two frames you, too. Why would you? I know, but why would you do it then? Like I don't I don't know. It's so, it's so silly. It's so silly. <laughs> Oh, the things that people desire. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> sleazy. Anyway, uh, sleazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Actually, I did want to talk a little bit about desire because um, we see Medusa, once she gets the, the devil's eye, uh, this diamond, she doesn't want it. She doesn't want it for the its value. It's it's money value. It, she wants it. She says the power, the power to any who who hold it or something like that, right? The one who owns it, which I thought was really interesting. Um, that her whole scheme here is is somehow to become more powerful, whereas Snoop's like he wants the money from it. Like so, 
uh, we see this beforehand, like um, when uh, Snoops and Medusa are talking, and he's like, "Look at all these other jewels that that she brought up from the cave." And Medusa says, "But I want the diamond." And then um, when they're in the cave, uh, Bernard says, "Let's start digging." And she's like, "Oh, I've already seen it." Like she doesn't care about those kind of jewels, so it's not the wealth that she wants. It's this particular diamond, and it's the power from it. And then when when she pulls it up, and uh, Snoops is still in this like wealth mindset he's like there's enough there to divide into two like we can you know we, we can both be rich off of this um so i don't know I don't, I don't know what the what what commentary the movie is making there if any um but i found that that to be a really interesting you, point in the movie do you think it's on purpose that that's the only thing we ever hear about this diamond having magical powers do you, do you think yeah that's to demonstrate that she's insane or do you think the movie's just underwritten? Because I think the movie's underwritten in a lot of ways. <laughs> well, and that's probably true, right? Like, there's, there's probably, there's, there's probably a lot more um, in this movie that we're not understanding uh, because of the underwrittenness. And I do think she's insane. But I was wondering if it was, um, yeah, I did, I didn't, I didn't know if she was talking about magical power or, yeah, you may be right. like, just you know, some sort of power in general. I don't know. It was, I, I just, I just found it really interesting. It was a weird scene. Yeah. I didn't know if this movie had anything to teach us about, um, the nature of evil or something like that. You know, like, uh, the fact that she is insane, the fact that the, you know, like there's no honor among thieves that they, you know, like they, they turn on each other, like that she's a traitor to, you know, to even her partner. Um, I mean, all that stuff I know is 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 fairly fairly normal um, villainy type stuff, but I thought it was it was kind of interesting. Still, I keep using that word "interesting." There needs to be a better word. That I well, well I, I, it's an important <laughs> word because I don't know that I would ever call this movie good, but it is interesting. Yeah, it, it's it's so weird and out of place, and and. In, in their way, I don't know they would make another movie like this until the 21st century. A movie this this set in the moment. The, the one I'm thinking about is Bolt, which uh, Bolt feels very much like it was made in 2008, the way this feels like it was made in 1977. Uh, Oliver and Company. Yeah, although I think this is better than Oliver and Company. I have not seen I... Oliver and Company in a long time. Yeah, this one feels more... Um... Well, we'll see when we get there. We'll we're getting we'll we'll be in Oliver and Company uh, before the end. No, not before the end of this year. Early next year we'll be at Oliver and Company. But um, but I, I do think uh, we're going to see a lot of parallels with Oliver and Company when we get there. Either way, because we'll see. Um, yeah, the kind of the grimy New York is still very much there. Um, the not so much the orphan, but we do see like kind of a, a more realistic sinister underbelly type thing you know um again comparing to like Cruella de Vil who you know she's she's sinister and all that but it's it's uh you know she's bought she's literally bought puppies <laughs> in order to slaughter them um and then steals 15 you know like um I'm not I'm not saying that animal rights are not uh I mean, it's just at a different level, right? We've talked about that before. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like there's there's a different level of of uh, sinisterness, um, both in Oliver and Company and in uh, and uh, this movie. Worth pointing out, Oliver and Company was originally supposed to be a sequel to this movie because the the 
human female in that movie was supposed to be Penny. Oh, really? That's really interesting. Just like huh. this was supposed to be a Funny. sequel to 101 Dalmatians. And also, um, Chippendale's Chip and Rescue Rangers, a show which I loved deeply as a kid, was also oh, supposed yeah, to be great. this. Like it oh, was supposed yeah, to be Bernard totally and Bianca. Yeah, I could totally see that. Okay, yeah. Isn't that weird? Good. It's like this This movie is at the, the center of their desire to make a sequel. And of course, yeah. it's the first Disney movie to have a sequel. Yes. Yeah. That's really. Yeah. That's that's really. <laughs> that's crazy. Um, yeah. I don't see how it would work as a sequel to. I mean, I guess in in some ways it does feel very uh, similar to 101 Dalmatians, in that you know there's 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 a animals interacting in the humans world and animals solving problems that are caused by humans, but in other ways it's very different. Just I mean, just the clothing. And the fact that the animals can actually talk to people and stuff are, is, you know, makes it completely different. So, anyway, that's very interesting. Well, I have one more note, Michael. How many more do you have? Uh, almost none. So I have kind of half notes. Okay. So the only other thing, I don't know if there's even anything to say on this, but the only the I thought it was really interesting that when they're in the uh, the cave and they're, you know. Uh, she doesn't want to go to the scariest, darkest place past the geyser to look for the diamond. Um, but of course, that's where the diamond is. And it just struck me um, as that's a that is a is a wonderful metaphor, I think, for um, our lives. Sometimes, like the the area of our life that we most like need to look at or should not neglect <laughs> but it's like so scary for us to look at um is the part that we like that's where the where we need to look right like that's that's the area where we most need to look so pry open um, the pirate skull of your soul yes <laughs> yes exactly um yeah, but that's all I had to say about that. It's not quite Tigger being a Christ figure, but <laughs> no, it's not, and I and, and that's okay. I think um, my friend Isabel did... on Twitter, I, I or uh, Facebook, I I posted that this movie was very seventies, and she uh, she asked me how it was about the Vietnam War, which I think is actually a pretty easy case to make because uh, this is about a, a semi-innocent American being dragged to the bayou into the swamp. To uh, to to fight a war, essentially, <laughs> I think you actually could make a Vietnam allegory out of the rescuers. Ah, well done. <laughs> I, I I just thought I I would have to outdo you turning Tigger into Jesus last last month. <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, yeah. You, I think you outdo me in most aspects in this podcast, Michael. You don't you don't have to outdo me on that one. <laughs> So we're taking a uh, we have another interlude next month. That's right. Yeah, we've reached the end of the seventies uh, with this back to back nineteen seventy sevens, but with this one and Winnie the Pooh. And so next month uh, we'll be doing Mary Poppins. Um, I don't remember what year Mary Poppins actually came out. Sixty four, I think. It's we're we're going back, but we didn't want to do it at the end of the sixties because it would have been three episodes between that and our last interlude. Right. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, this is our end of the end of the '60s and '70s inter- interlude, and so we watched Mary Poppins, which um, does have some animation in it. Um, 
and also it's just great. Uh, it's one of the live action Disney movies uh, from the era that uh, I think is still beloved and survived. You know. Yeah, it's a great movie. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it'll be it'll be fun to talk about that one. Um, and then uh, we'll be back uh, in September with Fox and the Hound. Uh, will be the next one in the in the Disney animated canon. When's the last so, time you saw Fox great. and the Hound, Josh? Oh my goodness! Uh, it's got to be at least uh, 25 years. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I don't know. Me too. It's so, been a long, long time. So we'll see what happens yeah. there. Yeah. <clears throat> well, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and we are on the old interwebs with the most sporadic show notes of any podcast at beforetheywere.live. Please help us continue this conversation by finding us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore alt, and Michael is at Michael Farmer. So for Michael Farmer, I'm Josh Altmanshofer, and I just want to gratefully say that we know that there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. I heard an ad just this week uh, for a new podcasting service, and they claimed that there were hundreds of thousands of podcasts and millions of episodes. 750,000 is what I heard. Okay, yeah, something like that. And this service offers curation of all those shows, uh, but the shows they mentioned in their ad were exactly the usual suspects you would expect. Uh, New York Times bestselling authors, hosts of television shows, uh, the already elite and famous, basically. Uh, so it made me think of you, and I was deeply thankful that you choose us, the niche, the uncurated, uh, secret and hidden away in this vast podcast structure, much as the Rescue Aid Society is hidden in the MUN building. Um, so we want to encourage you to set your podcast player styles to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. In a fix, in a bind, call on us anytime. Honesty and loyalty, we pledge to thee.